I'm going to try to say this first, and then you're going to you're going to correct me. So is it uh, Chris Perugini? It's Chris Perugini. Perugini. All right. Yes. That's definitely way more Italian then. So. Oh yes. Nice, nice, nice Irish name. Is it? Is it actually Irish? <laughs> no, no, okay. I was like, <laughs> I'm of 100% Italian uh, heritage. So. <laughs> This is episode 297 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's podcast, talking about scotch for the bourbon drinker, here's your weekly bourbon news update. Now, I need to make a correction to last week's podcast opening when I talked about the U.S. and the European Union putting a suspension on all tariffs that are part of Donald Trump's transatlantic trade war. It is correct saying that tariffs are being suspended for things like cheese, wine, brandy, rum, vodka, and many other goods, including scotch whiskey. However, it did not include American whiskey exports, such as Tennessee whiskey and, of course, bourbon, which are still suffering from a 25% tariff and are set to increase to 50% starting on June 1st. This is particularly hurting brands like Brown Foreman with Jack Daniels because they decided to absorb the cost instead of increasing prices because they thought... This only would have lasted a few months and not a few years, and it's resulted in annual expenses of $80 million, which is squeezing the company's profit margins and restraining hiring and expansion. American whiskey sales to the European Union, which is the U.S.'s largest export market, plunged 37% to $440 million since the tariffs went into effect back in 2018. Now, out of Louisville, Kentucky, Bro Brothers Bourbon has filed a false advertising lawsuit in federal court to protect its claim as the first African-American-owned distillery in Kentucky against Fresh Bourbon, which is based out of Lexington. Fresh Bourbon also claims it is the first Black-owned distillery in Kentucky, and the suit claims unfair competition under federal and state law and states that any other companies marketing themselves as the first Black-owned bourbon distillery in Kentucky are violating the Kentucky Consumer Protection Act and the Federal Lanham Act. The suit additionally claims that Fresh Bourbon knew about Bro Brothers and intentionally and improperly interfered with their business relationships while also not having a distilled spirits producer license from the TTB and while not operating a distillery. Bro Brothers has first made headlines back in January of 2020 after the company announced that it would debut its products locally in February of that year and are now opening their distillery in Louisville, Kentucky of April in 2021. The Kentucky Distillers Association has announced that it is canceling its annual Kentucky Bourbon Affair in 2021 due to the global COVID-19 pandemic. Several factors weighed in on the difficult decision, including travel issues, limits on attendance, CDC and social distancing guidelines, uncertainty about variants and conditions on the fall, and caution around distillery workers and resources that are currently off limits. However, the 30th anniversary of the Kentucky Bourbon Festival is still happening on September 16th through the 19th with in-person events happening as planned. And ticket sales began this week with one-day passes costing only a total of $10, which also includes a Glencairn glass. And premium event ticket sales will begin on June 1st. And you can get more info at kybourbonfestival.com. Now moving on to bourbon release news. Barrelcraft Spirits is introducing a new blend to the market called Seagrass. It's a blend of American and Canadian rye whiskeys finished in three distinct casks. Each ingredient is finished separately in Martinique rum agricole casks, apricot brandy casks, and Madeira barrels. 
barrel seagrass is bottled at cask strength, which is 118.4 proof and is priced at $90. It will be available in 45 US markets and online at barrelbourbon.com. Woodford Reserve has announced their 2021 release of their acclaimed batch proof, which is their barrel proof expression when all the barrels are dumped at once and then the final proof is determined. For 2021, the proof is 128.3 and will be available across the US in March for $130. Well, now that scotch prices will be lower for a few months, perhaps it's time we see what scotches are right for the bourbon drinker. In this podcast, I'm joined by Chris Perigini. He does private tastings and boasts a lot of worldly whiskeys on his Instagram account, Single Malt Savvy. He sent me four blind samples and we discuss them and see what types of scotches resonate with me as a bourbon drinker. With that, enjoy today's episode and here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Mike Stanley, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Do you listen to music when doing tastings? Curious on your thoughts about pairing albums and music. Hey, Mike is a man after my own heart. I have been talking about pairing music to bourbon for eh, probably about five to eight years. In fact, at one of the Kentucky Bourbon Affairs, I did a panel where I had people listening to Lionel Richie. I had people listening to like Metallica and like different types of country. And we would taste the same bourbon and they'd be like, wow, the bourbon tastes differently when you listen to music, this music. And so I very much do believe that what you listen to can impact and change the way you taste. Actually, it's not a belief. It's scientifically proven. In fact, I listened to uh, a Hanson song with a mm bop, you know, that song, I, I mean, it drives me crazy. Absolutely. That, that song, I hear it, I walk out the room, it drives me crazy. But I, I forced myself to listen to that song and drink uh, a William LaRue Weller one time. And it was disgusting when I tasted it. I turned the music off, listened to something I, I loved, and the William LaRue Weller tasted like it normally does, which is, you know, pretty beautiful. But so if you want to go toward like the pure science of it, it's fascinating like how much we can be influenced by what we listen to. But in terms of pairing, you know what? I have to tell you, this is, this, is a, this is a hobby of mine. This is something that I love to do. I like to really pair some Isla Scotches to, to a heavy metal like Slipknot uh, and Lamb of God. I love that kind of like heavy sound uh, with that deep, peaty flavor that makes it just kind of smoky all over your palate. I love that. And with a really great bourbon, let's say a Four Roses limited edition small batch, uh, I like, um, you know, I like to uh, kind of like an up-tempo uh, 1980s, like, um, you know, hair band, you know, maybe it's a ballad. I just, I kind of like, I, I like the songs that kind of move back and forth uh, as the whiskey's moving back and forth. So, it is definitely a fun hobby. I would love to know, um, Mike, what your favorite pairings are, because, I mean, I think it's a conversation that we could have all day, <laughs> to be honest with you. And as most things with bourbon, there is no wrong answer and no wrong preference. But definitely, I cannot drink bourbon and listen to Mbop. Can't do it. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you're like Mike and you have an idea for Above the Char, make sure you hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Until next week, cheers. 
And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 from their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny here today, taking on a topic that we've only done once before. We had Dr. Rachel Berry on the podcast of, it was actually, I think, very beginning of 2020. And that was really our first introduction to scotch. And we take this, an opportunity every single year to pull people with inside of our Patreon group to say, what topics do you want to know more about? And people really love the scotch episode. And for us, we're not we're not scotch drinkers. Like, you know, we're from Kentucky. We're in Louisville. Like it's really hard to branch out to scotch when you have so much bourbon in your backyard. And, you know, plus when you create your own private label bourbon, that's the only thing that your head is spinning is just bourbon, 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 bourbon. And knowing that people love the scotch episode so much, we said, well, what are the, what's the best way we can do to bring a little bit more scotchiness, I guess you could say to bourbon pursuit. And so we threw a few brands out there and we said like, Hey, would you like to hear from this brand or this brand or this brand? And this was something that kind of came up and was actually very fortuitous is that we have somebody that's within inside of our Patreon that is also hardcore scotch person. And we said, well, what if we take an, an unbiased approach? Well, that's not brand related or brand, you know, aligned or anything like that. And we just kind of looked at more of like, what does it look like for somebody that is in the bourbon world to also figure out, well, are there scotches that we could like too? So we said, well, let's do it. Let's, let's do, you know, scotch for the bourbon drinker. And so I'm very, very excited today to be able to have on our show, of course, a Patreon supporter, but we have Chris Perigini. He also runs the single malt savvy tag account everything like that on instagram and a few other different places so chris welcome to the show thanks kenny i'm really uh, really excited to be here and uh yeah let's let's chat about scotch 
Yeah, well, let's do it. Well, we'll get to that. Like, we always want to start with a, a random icebreaker to kind of let people know a little bit more about you. And so, Chris, your question is, is what was your first car? My first car was a 1998 Chevy Blazer. Nice. And it, uh, you know, it's actually funny that uh, now that I'm thinking about it, um, that car had something going on where no matter what time, uh, what, what part of the year it was in, there was this heat that would blast down into sort of where, right where the, um, right where the brakes and the, uh, and, and the, the uh, gas pedal was so that in the middle of summer, even with the AC blasting, your foot was completely on fire from that, that, that blast of heat. And we had them look at it over and over again. They could not figure out where that heat source was coming from. Um, so that's a, that, wow. I have not thought about that in a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I mean, everybody's got one of those, those good first car stories. So mine was a 1986 Nissan 200 SX four cylinder tur- turbo charge. And my dad always told me, he was like, this is too much car for you, son. It's too much car for you. I was like, it, it was a manual. So I had a, had a stick shift as my first car. That's what I had to learn on. And, and I think that was kind of like, you know, when you learn on a manual, it's like one of those like skills that you'll never lose. Like it's just something yeah. that you'll always be able to take with you. And I've always said that'll be the greatest thing about ever going on uh, the greatest race or the, you know, whatever it is, the amazing race. Yeah. Going on the amazing race is because they always have one challenge where you have to use a manual drive car and people just sit there and fumble over it all the time. And I was like, I would have this. I would own this competition if it came down to me for that one. Well, when the when the casting call comes, you'll be ready. Yeah, for sure. But I, I also, you know, even to my my dad's point, I did end up wrecking the car because you know, just being a teenager and probably being dumb. But that was uh that was that was I guess it's a bad way to finish the story, but it was it was a good car for a long, long time. I it, when I said I wrecked the car, and then it had to get a few few repairs and had some mismatched colored paint on it. But it was actually a a car that used to talk to you um, too. It was like oh really? Yeah, like very night rider like. Um, it had like the automatic seatbelts that would you know come come uh-huh. up when you close the yep. door, and it would be say like door is a jar, door is a jar, like if it was open or something like that. So. Oh, that's odd. way ahead of its time. Yeah, I was about to say it was a little ahead of its time. <laughs> so, Chris, let's let's start talking about Scotch. So, you're really going to kind of be my Scotch Sherpa as we start going through this. So, to kind of set the stage for everybody else is that uh, Chris has sent me three different pours of different things, and it's called Pour One, Pour Two, Pour Three. And so, I'll uh, I'll kind of start putting these uh, in my glasses here in a second. But I guess. A question for you is somebody that's coming from the bourbon side and going and trying to find scotch, where is, I mean, let's just kind of like set the, set the bar pretty easily here. Like what are some of those, those brands that people should start gravitating towards? And maybe what are those things that people should probably stay away from if they're really just trying to enter into the market a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, and I'm, especially when we're talking about the the three samples that I sent you, I, I thought uh, for a really long time about what I was going to send you because um, the, the range of flavors that, that is available in the scotch world is, is so varied. Um, it depends on region and cast type and all sorts of different factors. And so 
to even just try and narrow it down to three individual expressions was a really, really tricky challenge for me. Um, you know, for every for every pour that I sent you, there were probably five that I, I considered. Um, and, you know, I might talk a little bit about those as we're going through that. But because the the range of flavors is so, so vast, um, you know, it really made it uh, kind of tricky. So what I what I did was, and we'll we'll certainly get to these as we um as we go through, but I picked three pours that we'll 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 taste in order that sort of talk a little bit about the um some of the differences, um, some of the big differences between both bourbon and scotch, um, and then some of the things that make scotch unique. Um now what I did not include in any of your samples to sort of touch on part of your question, um, was anything that was kind of kind of falls in that heavily peated uh, arena. Oh thank um, God. Yeah that's I, I, <laughs> It, it, it's funny. I, we, I, had... wasn't, I thought about it, but I, I decided not to. You know, I've got a lot of um, a lot of friends and family that that really do stick to bourbon uh, for the most part. And every time we uh, try and dip our toes into those waters, it doesn't go well. So, um, so I wasn't going to put you through that today. But I do have three very different expressions with three very different styles to them that don't sort of cross that line into the into the heavy peat. Yeah, I remember when we had that that podcast with Dr. Rachel Berry, and we did we had a peated one. And Ryan and I were kind of like looking at each other like, do we tell her we hate this? Like, is this, is this something we should <laughs> keep to ourselves? Yeah. To be, uh, you know, to be honest, I've been, you know, I've been a, um, a scotch drinker for oh, almost 15 years and, um, I'm actually not a really big peak guy myself, even, even after all these years. Um, you know, it's, I think for some people it's, you either love it or hate it. Um, some people can sort of gain a little bit of an appreciation for it, but even for me, I, there's there are some expressions that I just kind of stay clear of, um, and as we'll talk about in uh, at, at some point during the discussion, there's an entire region of Scotland that where that's kind of the home to pe- peated whiskey, um, and so you know one of the things that you can definitely steer clear of as you're kind of making your transition into Scotch is to avoid that entire region to start with. Uh, <laughs> that's a good way to do it. it. Yeah. It'll keep it. I mean, it, you know, it keeps things uh, uh, a little bit safer. So. Um, our, our, our first pour, if you do have that um, in I your do. glass. And what I noticed um, going through these, and I'll show them for the camera that, that's anybody that's watching this, but if you're listening, just to kind of give you some visual cues, is that it, it actually goes in sort of a progression from lightest to darkest. And so I don't know if that was something that you're trying to do, but this is definitely the, mm-hmm. the lightest one. It's it's kind of more of a, a like a, a hay or a straw color, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that's, that's kind of interesting about uh, scotch, especially when you compare it to bourbon, is that one of the things that you're going to notice really, really uh, pretty quickly is just the color alone. And and so, you know, a lot of whiskey these days in Scotland is being uh, made without added coloring, but there's actually some brands out there that still add artificial caramel coloring to to enhance the actual flavor of, or I'm sorry, not the flavor, but the appearance of the, uh, the final pour. So we're talking about whiskey that's being aged um, instead of being aged in brand new charred oak barrels like, like bourbon would be. Um, we're talking about refill barrels that once held bourbon or barrels that have even been used two or three times already. So if you think about the impact that the wood is having on scotch as compared to, to bourbon, now we're talking about a barrel that's been used probably a couple of times. And so the resulting color can often look really, really light. I've seen some uh, some expressions out there that were upwards of 27, 28, 29, 30 years old um, that looked just like a this pale, pale straw. Um, and it has it really has no impact on the flavor. It's just um, the, you know, the influence from the wood itself. Yeah, I mean, that's always one thing that's been interesting, as everybody kind of knows in the bourbon world, it is a new charred oak barrel one time after that, it's done. And most of the time, these are working with very, very large corporations, whether it's Brown Former, Diageo, they have bourbon in their portfolio. 
but they also have a lot of scotch in their portfolio. So as soon as it's done with bourbon, pack it up on some containers, put on a ship, and it just goes right over across the European Union and goes to whatever kind of distillery that needs it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the, the bourbon industry really is kind of the lifeblood of, of the scotch industry these days, um, especially the way that the market has has grown, you know, over the past 10, 15 years. Um, so, of course, we've seen the growth on the on the American whiskey side of things. It's just as crazy on the scotch side as well. And so, you know, that steady supply of of fresh freshly used bourbon barrels making its way into Scotland is a huge, huge part of the industry. Um, you know, I would say the vast majority of the, the barrels that are aging in Scotland right now once held bourbon. So, um, you know, there's a big, big connection between the two. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting. Anybody that is a bourbon drinker is that you should be able to appreciate that, that a lot of the scotches, it's all taking nods, a lot of nods that are, are coming from bourbon. But that's not everything. I, I know that people are using scotch and old sherry butts and everything like that. So there's and I think you alluded to it at the very beginning is that there's such a wide range of flavors and, and things that happen with inside of the Scotch world that it, it might be considered quite different in the the bourbon world because the bourbon world, the one thing that stays somewhat constant is the barrel. It's a new charred orc barrel. There's different char levels. There's different types of wood that you can be able to make. Uh, and then the grains themselves, you have different mash bills that happen inside of bourbon. But inside of Scotch, there's even more variability that you can you can do in there. So the the range of flavors grows exponentially, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting if you think about the diff, uh, one of the big differences between um, how scotch and bourbon is made actually comes down to the, the grains itself. And when we're talking about most scotch, um, single malts in particular, the variable that cannot be played with at all is the grain. So if you look at the expression single malt scotch, you know, the first word single means that it comes from a single distillery. The word malt means that the grain bill has to be 100% malted barley. Um, so they have no um, play in terms of what grains go into it. It has to be 100% malted barley to be called a single malt scotch. Um, and so you think about the uh, difference and in, in grains and the proportion of grains that get used in the bourbon and, or you know, bourbon, rye world. And you can, you can really have an impact on flavor just by the, the types of grains that go into your mash. Um, but in the scotch world, they have no way around that unless you start talking about blends and, and single grain scotches and things like that. But the bulk of what you're going to find on the shelf um, is going to be single malt, which is 100% malted barley. So where the difference in flavor comes from, there's actually a couple of different things going on. Uh, obviously, the, the wood plays a big part in it, um, as it does with any aged product. Um, so we're talking about ex-bourbon barrels. We're talking about, um, you know, sherry casks, and, and as you alluded to, and, and, and pork casks. And, you know, one of the cool things about scotch is that because that requirement isn't there, that, you know, it does not have to be aged in a brand new, uh, you know, charred oak barrel. Well, you can have an expression that's aged solely in sherry casks, solely in European oak. And now we're talking about sets of flavors that you just never see in the bourbon world because the regulations really just forbid it. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, so now we've talked about the wood having an impact on flavor. The other thing that, that has a big impact on flavor is the actual distillation itself. So Scotland has, um, you know, most of those distilleries use kind of an old school process. Um, they use those big pot stills. They do two runs. Um, and of course, the shape of the still makes a really big difference as well. So you talk about the difference between that and, you know, the big column stills that get run in, in the U.S. And if you look at uh, a lot of the different still rooms in some of these distilleries in Scotland, um, you've got wide ranges of anything from these little short squat stills to super tall, narrow stills. And um, those that, that shape really makes a big difference on some of the, the, the house character of the distillate. 
And so compared to, to you know, a lot of the distillation that happens over in the U.S., now we're talking about controlling your sort of your house flavor from the stills itself and then really utilizing all sorts of different variations of wood to, to impact flavor. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there is a lot of variables that that come into this and it's interesting to kind of kind of dive into this. I don't know if you want to like tell me what each one of these are as we go through, if we should say the reveal for the end, what, what do you think is yeah, the best way to do I, it? I, I, was, I was thinking about revealing them as we, as we went through them. Um, and this was actually kind of a perfect segue into our, into our first pour. So, so what I decided to start with today is a single malt that is aged solely in ex-bourbon casks. So that's kind of the, again, it's kind of the lifeblood of, of, of the scotch industry. Um, so many barrels are, are aging right now, once held bourbon. And so this is a release that, that is aged 100% in ex-bourbon barrels. Um, and, and as we kind of talk about other expressions, you're going to see that a lot of times there's a sort of a proportion of ex-bourbon barrels to ex-sherry casks. So sometimes they'll be like, you know, at 75% ex-bourbon, you know, 25% ex-sherry, and then they kind of vat it together. Or sometimes they'll age primarily in ex-bourbon and then finish it in ex-sherry for a couple of years. Um, but with this expression, it's all bourbon, 100% aged the entire time in those ex-bourbon barrels. And it kind of produces a, a, what I consider to be a really classic ex-bourbon cask-matured um, uh, whiskey. So, you know, you've got that. You, you can kind of get some of those hints of bourbon notes. Um, but again, it's not, it's not heavily oak and vanilla driven the way that you would find from bourbon itself. Um, it's got more of a grain forward, uh, sort of a floral type of um, uh, kind of a, like a fruit orchard type of note as well to it. Um, totally agree. And so I, this is, yeah. And so this is a, this is a really, really good expression, I think, to kind of set your, set your expectation for, for what a good Highland single malt uh, is. And, and I would say this is, this is a good introduction for a, a bourbon drinker here uh, because it, yeah. as you had mentioned, it, if it is ex-bourbon cask, now that I smell it, there is. There is that that note of of some caramel vanilla that does come that you would expect to get from that particular kind of of cask. Um, the taste is a little bit different, as you said. There's a little more grain forward there, um, and you definitely get more of that barley note there too. Yeah, and so I thought a lot about what I wanted this first expression to be, and and I mentioned that this is a, a Highland single malt. So the Highlands is a huge, huge region of Scotland. There's five main regions. Um, each one sort of has kind of its own style to it. Um, although there's there is some variation depending on on where you are and which distillery you're at, but so for our our, our first expression, I chose something that's that's out there, it's available, but I don't think it's something that a person would reach for unless they really knew about it. So ooh, okay, this is this is going to be um Deanston twelve year old. Um, okay. so it's it's probably a brand that that you may have walked past before on the shelf, but it's not something that you would probably reach for, especially if you are looking at um, brands out there that you know, sort of have the name recognition already. So you've got your McAllen's and your Glenfiddich's and your, your Glen Levitt's. So Deanston kind of falls in sort of a similar uh, kind of style as, as like your Glen Levitt's and your, and your Glenfiddich's. But I think it's done um, a little bit better in that, you know, it's bottled at uh, 46.3%. Um, I, I, like I like to showcase um, single malts that are, are at that 46% alcohol by volume or higher because um, there's a good chance it's non-chill filtered. Um, and that makes a really big difference in the Scotch world. So, you know, there was a movement that really started kind of at the beginning of the 2010s where a lot of brands were sort of revamping their lineups. What was being bottled at sort of that bare minimum 80 proof was starting to get a little bit of a, a, a bump in ABV. They started non-chill filtering. Um, they started removing added coloring and stuff. And so there was a little bit of a renaissance that came about over the past 10 years. And I think it's really driven by the expanding market. And so, um, so Deanston is a really great single malt to kind of showcase that Highland style, but 
um, for a bourbon drinker that might be used to drinking, let's say, bottled in bond, something that's kind of at that 100 proof or, or higher, it's still got a little bit of, uh, of bump in ABV to it to, so that you're not, you don't feel like you're kind of going back to, to something uh, that's a little bit watered down, which is, I think, a big complaint from, from some of the bourbon drinkers that I've talked to. Um, they always say that, you know, some of the scotch out there that they try, it's bottled at that 40%, tastes watery and thin, and it's kind of just part of the, the, the process of, um, of making scotch. It's more of an elegant, um, more of an elegant whiskey. Um, and so it's kind of meant to be kind of um, a little bit more smooth and, and uh, kind of kind of watered down. But a lot of these brands are really starting to 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 kind of back up and and say, hey, you know, let's let's just start non-chill filtering. Let's start bringing the proof up a little bit, and it's, it's making a big difference. Well, I think the cask strength renaissance might have been the uh, the the one that broke the camel's the Charlotte broke the camel's back there. I think you know the the interesting thing about this particular whiskey is it, Deanston, correct? Yes, and yep. and I'm just trying to remind back in my head of talking to Dr. Rachel Berry, and it was always Glens and Bens, you know. Yes. And that's and I never heard the Deans, so that's a new one to me. Yeah, and uh, you know, um, most of the distillery names that you find in Scotland are either going to be named after um, the town, um, you know. Some, sometimes it's a region. You talked about Bens. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of Ben brands out there, and of course those are the those are the hills, and then the Glens, of course, are the valleys. And so it's very geographic and region based, you know, as compared to to most of the brands that you find, um, you know, over in the U.S., which are either named after people or you know whatever. There's a long history behind that. But um, chances are, if you're if you're looking at a brand of Scotch, it probably has something to do with the actual physical location of the distillery. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It makes sense. But honestly, this is a this is a really good, strong offering. I think getting into it. I mean, is this uh, Deanston? I mean, is kind of give people like a, a price ballpark on on what something like this would cost? Yeah, that's that's actually the other reason that I chose this. Um, I think that the price point is is really pretty solid for a twelve year old single malt. It's probably these days somewhere in like the fifty five sixty dollar range. Um, so it's it's really not bad, and that's that's one of the big barriers to entry for for people that are into bourbon is that you, you go and you look at the the shelves uh where, where the scotch is and you're like wow those prices are insane compared to uh you know being able to pick up a, a bottle for thirty dollars um on, on the bourbon side of things so um you know the pricing is is way different and you know part of it has to do with uh you know there being some imports and there's some tariffs and stuff in place right now which which is which is bringing the price up but also we're talking about a product that's aged significantly longer too and that's something else that that I, I do want to touch on at some point is that the aging climate, you know, makes for for a little bit of a, a different requirement to to really put out a single malt that has aged for enough time. Um, you know, you can put out a, a a bourbon that's you know four or five years old, and with you know some of those hot climate cycles in Kentucky, four four or five years is plenty. But it's very different in Scotland, so you don't have those extreme temperature swings. And so I've tried some some four or five year old single malts; um, they're just not ready. And so now we're talking about products that need to be aged at least, uh, you know, ten to twelve years on uh, for the most part to, to to really start to rough out, you know, round out those rough edges. Um, and so you know the price has to kind of increase accordingly. The angel share takes its you know takes its its part in all of this, and um, especially when you get to a scotch that's 20, 30, 40 years old, there's not a lot left in those barrels. I would imagine it's a that's a really good point to kind of bring up, you know, as we start talking about the the aging process because. Yes, the climate does play a, a big role into this. I mean, I've heard that, you know, I think in in Kentucky and where else, like you you lose, you know, 7 to 14%, you know, the first two years with inside of a bourbon barrel. But if you do this over in, in Scotland or, you know, actually, yeah, in Scotland, you're at around like 2 to two to 4%. 
So yeah, it's, 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 it's a, significantly less, but it's, it's, you know, it's still happening and, you know, happening of course, over a much longer period of time, depending on, you know, the age of the expression. So for sure. And for some reason it's, and it is different. I mean, I'm not too sure if it is the character of the grain that's going in or if it's all climate, but yeah, you're right. Like you can get a really good bourbon in four to six or seven years with inside of, uh, with, uh, the bourbon category. But to do that inside of scotch, it's actually very, very difficult. Um, and so that's why you don't see anything from the scotch category coming out at a, at a younger age range. I mean, most of the things that at least that either I pay attention to or that I see when I walk across the shelves at the local liquor store. Yeah. I mean, most of them are at least in double digits. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it you know, and if you think about um, the way that some of these distilleries approach their sort of their cask selection. For some distilleries, there are products where they know that they want maybe this batch to be something, hopefully, that ends up being really good in 20 plus years. So now we're talking about something that's super well-aged. Um, they might actually purposely choose to use a barrel that's either a second fill barrel or a third fill barrel, something that's already aged whiskey two or three times after aging bourbon. And so they know, hey, you know, it's almost the equivalent of saying, hey, let's put let's put this in the slow cooker and uh, put it on low for 12 hours. Same thing. You know that you're you're going to very slowly extract that flavor over over the course of decades, as opposed to just a couple of years. And, I love me you know, some really slow cookers. Yeah, <laughs> slow cooking chili. Oh, that's, that's the best. All right, I start. I moved on to uh, pour number two over here. Honestly, yes, I perfect. like the I like the nose in two more than I like in one. I am so glad you said that because uh, pour number two was was actually the one that I um, I hummed and hawed about the most out of the three, um, and I'll, I'll explain why in a bit, but. Um, yeah, it's not some like about, it's like some like crazy unicorn scotch, is it? No, no, no. I, I chose I chose three expressions that were very um, at least relatively easy to find on shelves. So if um, so if anyone is interested in picking it up, um, it should be something that you could find with at least a little bit of effort. Um, yeah, I was about to say. I was like, if you give me a unicorn, you're wasting on the wrong person because I'll be like, oh, sure, it was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, before I before I tell you um, exactly what this one is. I, I, I chose this one um, from a, a very different region than, than what we tried with our Deanston. Um, and yeah, you, you'll see a little bit of a, a difference in color. More of a rust color on this one, yeah. Yeah, yep. So this one, this one um, ends up um, aging primarily in ex-bourbon casks, and then it actually moves to a, a couple of different cast types, um, a proportion of which is ex-sherry. And so that, that color really starts to, starts to show once you start adding sherry influence. And so this is a... Um, this is an expression that comes from a uh, a region of Scotland that has its um, uh, that has its uh, kind of a ravenous fan base to it, um, and so we talk about our uh, our Highlands, which is where kind of the bulk of the distilleries are. That's where you've got kind of this nice light fruity kind of um, uh, just generally pleasing, I think, uh, uh, ex bourbon cask uh, matured stuff. You've got the Lowlands, which there's only a couple of distilleries there. Um, that's more of a more of a softer type of style um, that you're going to find in that region. We've got the island of Isla, which is where all the peat is for the most part. Um, so I would probably steer clear of that as a, a bourbon drinker. Um, although I've I've known some people that <laughs> take to peat really quickly, but I would not um, I wouldn't bank on it if you're uh, if you're giving it, giving it a go for the first time. Speyside is a region within the Highlands, um, and there's a huge concentration of distilleries there. But our our last region is actually where this comes from, and it's called Campbelltown. Um, it's on the west coast of Scotland, and it's kind of where the lowlands and the highlands meet, kind of in that area. Um, it's on the shore, 
And there are only a few distilleries in Campbelltown. But one of the reasons why I chose this expression on purpose is that there is uh, something, uh, there's a term among the, the, the Scotch community that is um, very, very unique to Campbelltown, and they call it Campbelltown Funk. I like and, it. And uh, so, you know, you, 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 and it's one of those things where you almost have to, you almost have to, to, to smell it and taste it to understand it. And so if you think about, if you, you know, old school, dusty, well, turkey funk when you, when you smell it and when you taste it. And it's almost kind of hard to describe until you've tried it. And this kind of has a similar vibe to it, right? And so the primary distillery that, that kind of features that, that Campbelltown funk is a, a distillery called Springbank. And I did not choose that um, simply because Springbank does have some, some peated elements to it. Um, and I wanted to almost isolate that, that little weird funk without the peat influence, knowing that it would be kind of overpowering for your palate potentially. Probably. Um, That's probably the only thing I'd pick out. I'd be like, oh, yeah, smoke, cough. Uh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so while there, there, while I think there is a little bit of a kind of a smoke influence, um, it's really, um, it really plays kind of a, kind of a, a supporting role against a, a cast of all sorts of other really cool flavors. And yeah, there's a, um, there's like a nice little toasty note to this as well that I think is, is, is kind of cool. And, um, I believe this expression actually does have a, a, a kind of a heavy char finish. Um, so I, I, I thought that would be kind of cool for a bourbon drinker to, to try something that, um, again, Kind of, kind of, kind of relates back to the bourbon world. We're seeing a lot of those heavy char finishes in the bourbon world these days. Um, and this is a this is a Scotch that's doing the same thing, and and you don't see that kind of um, that kind of finishing very often, um, where they're messing with char levels in in the Scotch world. So I thought this was kind of cool. Yeah, but, I do. Um, I actually okay. So I'll, I'll I'll go ahead and start ranking them as I go. So right now I like two more than I like one. Uh, I love love the the D town over there. I still think you're creating great whiskey. Uh, I just think uh, point number two right here so far. I really enjoy this one. I think you are right on that nose. You do get a little bit of which now that you said the funk, you know, you're kind of like, oh my God, that actually is there a little bit. Like you yeah. do, you do get just a, a little hint and reminiscent of it. Um, and then for the flavor in itself, it is, it's a little more floral, more fruity, but the finish isn't like strong. It's not robust. It doesn't leave you like sitting there like, oh, it's like a minute later. It's still, still sitting there. But it's a very palatable type of drink. Yeah. Yep. And it is. And, um, you know, this one is, um, uh, I don't believe this is bottled at cast strength, but it is higher proof. Let me see. It's at uh, 51.5%. So, um, again, a little bit more of a bump in, in ABV here. Um, of course, again, I always I sent you three three expressions that were non-chill filtered on purpose. That way you've got that nice kind of oily mouthfeel, um, which I think makes a big difference. Um, but, yeah, so if you're, uh, if you're interested in the reveal, it's not like you're going to know what the brand is. <laughs> Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's point of sale Go Mobile device for a battle tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. So if you're, uh, if you're interested in the reveal, it's not like you're going to know what the brand is. No, I'm <laughs> not going to know. But I, I would say, I would say, I, I think if you probably put this one into a blind with a few bourbons, you you would probably, you'd, you'd figure this would, you'd be like, this is, this is, this isn't a scotch. This is, it, 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 it might fool you. It really would. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I'll, uh, I'll show you what, uh, what this second expression is. Um, and there's only a few Campbelltown distilleries, so you've, you've, you've had a pretty good shot if you were familiar with the region. Um, this is a distillery called Glen Scotia, and the expression is called Victoriana. So um, this is a non-age stated Glen Scotia, and I don't think it says it on here, but it's, um, so it, it has that, that charred oak finish. And so this is typically when you see something without an age statement in the Scotch world, you kind of make the assumption that they're kind of dipping into the single digits, although it probably isn't all single digit uh, aged whiskey. So a lot of times you'll see, um, and, and this is happening, of course, in the bourbon world too, you'll see uh, an expression and then the age statement goes away and then they come out with something that's kind of similar. And instead of having a 12 year age statement, you're going to, you're going to assume, okay, well now they're probably tapping into, you know, those eight year old barrels. Um, there might be some 12 year old barrels in there too, but because they're dipping down below the, the, the double digit mark, um, they just removed the age statement completely. So, um, so I'm going to say this is probably a, a relatively close to 10 year old um, whiskey, but it's got that sherry influence. It's got that 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 new charred oak influence that um, that or I'm sorry, the heavy char influence that I think really could appeal to a bourbon drinker. And it, there's not so much sherry that it kind of loses that classic ex bourbon cask flavor to it. So the sherry is going to add a little bit of that spice. Um, you might get a little bit of those like kind of dark fruit notes, and that's primarily going to come from the sherry cask. But again, this is an expression that I think is um, is just really has draws a lot of parallels to the bourbon world. I think it, I think people would like it. I do. I think it's a I think it's a good harmonious kind of liquid, if you will. I mean, I, I think it really does. It plays it plays really well. Like I said, if you were to put this in a blind and I mean, a legit blind, like I, I could see by by color alone, it would probably not stand up to some of the bourbons that you typically see. But if I, I let's say double blind, like literally the, the cups are blind and, and I've got a blindfold on, then I might be able to say like, yeah, this is, this might actually pass for some type of bourbon, but it is good. Um, and it is, it is funny that you say that you, we see this happening, not just in bourbon, but we also see it in scotch where people are either removing age statements and having to get product out the door. I mean, is that something I'm not in tune with the scotch world, of course, but you know, we can we can always look back at the days of uh, Elijah Craig taking off the 12 year age statement and everybody, you know, throwing fists in the air and getting mad. And then uh, a year or two later, we're like, eh, it's okay. Like we're good. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. At least you're, at least there's still 12 year, I think on the back of Elijah Craig barrel proof, but it's still really good whiskey and nobody's, nobody's really upset about it by any means anymore. So is that a pretty common practice that you kind of see in scotch now too? 
Um, it is, although there are a lot of brands in the Scotch world that sort of doubled down and prepared really, really heavily for a, a an upswing in the market. Um, so I don't know who was doing the forecasting for some of these brands, but there are a few out there that quite literally have kept the same exact age statements that they had 10, 15 years ago. And, and I don't know how they're doing it other than they planned ahead really, really far in advance and then had those well-aged stocks ready to go. At least, know, it's, at it's, least it's, some of those are like 20 plus years old. I mean, that's, yeah. that's insane. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. And so um, to, to see some, some distilleries out there that, again, are putting out consistent 21-year-old plus releases, somebody really, really thought things through a long time ago. And it's, it's kind of cool to see who, who planned for it and who didn't, because there are some expressions that um, just went by the wayside. And so I got another question for you uh, before we start moving on here, point number three. You know, in, in the bourbon world, somebody gets into bourbon and then they really start exploring bourbon. And the next thing they're like, I got to get my hands on Pappy. And we see this time and time again. And, and we're like, okay, like, here we go. Another person that we've got to educate to be able to like, listen, there's a lot of great whiskey. Don't get me wrong. Pappy's a very good whiskey, but there's a lot of other good bourbon out there you should try. Does it happen in the same thing in the, in the Scotch world? They're like, oh, I got to have the Macallan, whatever, 30, 40, whatever it is. I mean, I know the Macallan is kind of like one of the, the bigger names. It's like the Pappy Van Winkle, maybe-ish of the Scotch world. Do you see that happen time and time again, too? It's, it's funny that you, you mentioned Macallan right off the bat, because that's the, that's the first place that I think is, um, yeah, Macallan special releases um, are always, always highly sought after. And it's kind of interesting that brand in particular went through um, a really a, a pretty interesting uh, almost rebirth over the past ten years or so. Um, a lot of it came down to the the casks that were at their disposal, you know, ten fifteen years ago compared to now. And so um, one of the things that made Macallan, you know, such a, a sought after brand was that they were using some of these incredible sherry casks that were holding, you know, that that once held this 30, 40 year old um, sherry, and of course. 30, 30 year old cherry barrels, once the market starts to take a, a swing in the up, you know, in the upward direction, they run out really quickly. And so a lot of what has happened with that brand has sort of shifted to more of an American oak driven type of profile. But one of the other things that makes it tricky on the scotch side of things is that we're talking about a very, very different global market for scotch. So there's a huge, huge market in Asia. There are, are there's a market there that will buy up anything that gets put out. Um, especially if it has a, a special a special release on it, or there's a huge price tag or a huge age statement, there are some brands that almost seem like they're producing just for those specialty markets. Makes sense sometimes, and, though. Yeah, and and you know what? Um, there there are a couple of countries in particular. Taiwan will buy everything; they will just buy it all up. And so the the distilleries have made note of that, and there are a lot of releases that are actually Taiwan exclusives because they just know that Taiwan will buy anything that gets put out there, but they end up putting out really cool stuff. Um, and so they're, they're actually had to track down a, a bottle of a, um, a very special edition Glenn Levitt that came out just for Taiwan. Um, I ended up going like the auction route and it basically did the, the, the world tour to, to, to get to me, but they really do pay attention to, to global markets um, in a very, very different way than, um, than what we see here in the U.S. with bourbon. Yeah. I mean, we, we look at bourbon as, you know, it's in our backyard and and having bourbon here is great. And I think this is one thing. And I think that the trade dispute hasn't been echoed enough to the general populace that they understand that, yes, the trade dispute, it affects bourbon a ton. Because as we start trying to figure out, well, 
yes, scotch owns the world in whiskey, but why can't it be bourbon? There's no reason that it couldn't be bourbon right there next to scotch. And most people are very, you know, they have their blinders on and they think, well, that's great. I just get more whiskey in my backyard. Like, no, like we're trying to grow the category as a whole. We're trying to get more people in the world involved in seeing the greater good of what bourbon can do. And it's awesome that even Taiwan can basically have country exclusives. I mean, I would only imagine that, and hopefully the day will come where there are exclusives like that for the bourbon category. And maybe it's because it's either a blend with somebody that they did something special and it's only going to Japan or it's going somewhere. Like those are those are really cool offerings that I think helps grow the category immensely. Yeah. I mean, and if any if any country deserves it, it's Japan for for really keeping the industry afloat when it when it needed it. Absolutely, for sure. So I, I started moving on to number three already. Yeah. Um so the color, if you were to put this in a blind, you'd be like, oh, okay, well, that's definitely a bourbon. However, yep. when you start getting into the nose and the taste, it, it's not. And I'm I'm gonna go ahead and try to put my my little spin on this. I feel like this is much more sherry influence. Am I wrong? No, you are absolutely correct. Okay, good, yep. good. All right, so my palate is just busted. Like I, I know at least a little bit what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. And yep, the the color is kind of a kind of a dead giveaway. Um, you don't you don't see that sort of um, like just burnt copper hue without without some some hefty sherry cask influence. Um, so now we're talking about a very very different flavor profile than than you're going to find compared to the other two. And you know I love um, I love coming up with these flights. So I do a lot of tastings, um, uh, both in person and and lately virtual with the way that the uh, the world has been. And so once you once you switch to um, what we like to call in the in the uh, the Scotch world a, a sherry bomb, you do not go back from that. So that's that's always going to be your closer for the evening. And you know it's it's just going to stick and, and stick to your mouth and and just um, coat it with that extra sweetness. And there's definitely no going back after that. So. Is it just um, because so, of just the sweetness and that's just like basically your, your palate just gets like it succumbs to it. And then it's really kind of yeah. hard to go back to either something that's a little more hay or straw color or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. We're just talking about the, just the most full body profile and that, that, that extra sweetness that comes from, from the sherry. It's, it's hard to top that. Um, the only thing that would top this would be something heavily peated, but we're, I, that, that, that pour didn't make it to you, unfortunately. It's okay. Thanks. I would have been like, mm. <laughs> I'll have a little bit and be like, thanks for, thanks for the report, Chris. Now it goes down the yeah. drain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so what you're, what you're probably noticing here is just how front forward those like red berries and that, that hefty, hefty baking spices. The, a lot of times the, actually most times the sherry casks that get used um, in the production of scotch um, either held Oloroso sherry or PX, Pedro Jimenez sherry. And those are, the sweetest of the sweet. And if you look at the spectrum of different types of sherry, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different types. There's sherry out there that actually looks just like white wine, um, has sort of a dry dry texture to it. But PX and, um, and Oloroso um, have this super robust sweetness. PX in particular, the grapes actually get sun-dried down to, to like the consistency of raisins. Um, and it just makes it this huge, big blast of sugar that goes into the production. And so yeah, I mean, you can you can really really tell the difference when when you're talking about um, a sherry cask compared to an ex bourbon cask. For sure, and and I will say that you know I've had the opportunity to have a, a sherry bomb or two, if you will, and and this was I think for maybe anybody getting into bourbon, I guess Angel's Empty is kind of your closest kind of competitor, or you know, kind of something that you can get off the shelf relatively easy and compare it side by side. 
however, there's a, a notable difference in the flavor of the whiskey uh, when it comes from something that's a, a a Scotch sherry versus something that's just you know fit a, a bourbon finish in an export barrel. Uh, yeah, and you know part of that has to do with the fact that. Um, you almost get a chance to isolate the influence that the sherry cask has without the competition from the corn. So you think about the uh, what a dominating grain corn is and, and the kind of sweetness that that grain adds in bourbon. Well, you take that and you add a sherry cask finish to it, and now you're just throwing sweet on top of sweet. Um, and it kind of makes it tricky sometimes to, to separate the two. But when you start looking at something like a single malt where we're talking about a very different, uh, much more robust grain that doesn't just add that that big blast of sweetness like malted barley now the influence that you're getting from the sherry cask is way more um it's way easier to isolate it and really kind of um kind of see exactly what kind of influence it has on the whiskey yeah it's much more pronounced uh you definitely do get more of that sherry note and i actually had to go back and and try number two uh side by side to kind of figure out like okay well which one was more bourbon like um it's hard to tell like I would love to be able to put two and three into a flight and actually see if I could be like, which one's not the bourbon. And I think that color alone, of course, three is going to be in there and two would rule itself out. Uh, I still feel two would, would still hang pretty well when it comes to it. Yeah, I, um, I think so. But but with three, you know, I'll let you do the reveal here in a second. I, I do feel that there is a very, there is a, there is a good sherry influence that might for at least people that are, not accustomed to a lot of bourbons would be like, oh, that's overly fruit forward is what they would mm-hmm. probably think it is. Um, yeah. In fact, it's really not what it is at all, but it's still a, a very standout whiskey. And I think, and I, I know, I guess I'll, I'll put up to you is like, if you are, if you are a bourbon drinker and you know, you gave me three flights there, you know, three samples today, and you're to say like, okay, if you want to make an entrance into the Scotch world, at least just to try, just to try and, you know, expand your horizon because we're all getting sick of chasing after allocated bottles and getting told, no, you can't get any BTAC this year or whatever it is. What, which one do you think is the the right move for, for somebody to go for here? Or is it just, say, a, you, uh, got, you got to get all three. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's a tricky question. And, and, and the reason why I, I, I paused for a minute is that I, I, I chose a, a sherry bomb on purpose as pour number three, um, because in my experience, at least um, with, with friends um, and, and family that are pri- primarily bourbon drinkers, for, for whatever reason, the sherry bomb always seems to be a hit with the bourbon folks. Um, I think that there, you can, you can kind of relate to the sort of the extra um, sweetness that kind of almost adds itself as a really, really thick layer on top of sort of that grain forward note. And so um, when you make the when you make the switch over to scotch, and now we're talking about, again, a grain in malted barley that is a very, very different style than what you would find with, with a corn-based uh, uh, grain bill, having, I think, the comfort of that extra sweetness from the sherry cask goes a long way. While I think that the, that the, um, the, the Deanston and the, the Glen Scotia are, are, are great choices, if you really want to um, kind of ease your way in by kind of almost going backwards through the the, the level of sweetness, something that's got some heavy sherry influence would probably be a, a good place to start. All right, so do the reveal. What are we what are you drinking for number three? Yeah, number three is actually a single barrel, and this is a fifteen year old single barrel uh, from the Balvenie. So I happen to be a, a huge Balvenie fan. I, I, know that, I know that name before. I've, I've heard of the Balvini before, so yeah. I, I know I know they're at least somewhat popular. 
Yeah, it's the um, it's actually the sister company or sister distillery of uh, Glenfiddich, both owned by William Grant and Sons. They actually are almost like right next door to each other. Um, and so this is a this is a single uh, sherry cask from the Balvenie. And I actually am just getting to the end of this bottle, but I have another one next to me. And I want to show you the difference in color. When I hold this bottle up, we're talking about like, wow, it's like you can coffee. barely, barely see through it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so Balvenie actually will put out first fill sherry casks like this um, and refill sherry casks under the same label. And if you're curious to know which one is which, just take a look at the color. Like you can tell this is a first fill. Like there's no doubt about it. But there's a, um, you know, there's a there's a, a a really really crazy transformation that happens, um, you know, after 15 years in a single sherry button, and you're you're tasting it here. The 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 thickness and the um, the again just the, all of those big dried berry notes, um, the the heavy spice. It's just heavy on the cinnamon and nutmeg. It all come. It so much of it comes from the sherry itself. The Belvanie is a really cool uh, distillery to age in sherry casks because. Um, the house style of this distillery is kind of an orange honeyed, uh, kind of honeyed citrus type of profile to begin with. Um, so you think about like something that's kind of heavy on the honey already, and then you add that sherry cask influence, and it's just kind of a home run combination of flavors. And what's the ABV on this one? Because I feel also like this one is is uh, holding onto the palate a lot longer too. Yeah. So this one is bottled at forty seven point eight percent. So it's actually it's actually under hundred proof, but it it. It really drinks, um, I think, at, at just the perfect, perfect spot for um, for what I think they're going for. And for anybody that's interested, what's the what's the price range on on a Balvenie? Yeah, so so this Balvenie is um, definitely the most expensive of the three. Um, it's going to be closer to that like hundred and forty, hundred and fifty dollar range um, if you can find it for for that price. I don't think we talked about the price of the Glen Scotia. That was closer to like the eighty nine dollar range. So they did go up in price as we kind of went through the flight. And a lot of times you'll find a distillery will put out, let's say, a standard range. So let's say like, okay, this distillery has a 12-year-old expression, a 15, an 18, a 21. Those are kind of standard uh, ages that, that get used in the, in the industry. And of course, the price goes up accordingly because the age goes up. But oftentimes, as the age goes up, the proportion of ex-sherry casks goes up as well. So now we're talking about casks that are harder to find, more expensive, um, and you know, it kind of results in in a, a higher price point. So, so it's a really common trend in a lot of these brands as you kind of look at the different ages uh, that are out there. It's a pretty safe assumption that the higher up you go in age, the higher the sherry cask influence is. Good deal. Well, yeah. I'll tell you what. I, you know, you told me. I started drinking this Balvini and I'm like, Ooh, maybe we should do a single. You told me a single barrel. I was like, Ooh, maybe we should do a single barrel of this for for Bourbon Pursuit and we'll, we'll, and you'll you'll be our Sherpa for it. But now you're hundred fifty dollars and I was like, oh, it's gonna be tough to convince a bunch of people to pay hundred fifty dollars for Scotch when we're Bourbon yeah. Pursuit. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, you know, it's funny the the, the private um, the private barrel uh, uh, market in the scotch world is is nothing like what it is in the bourbon world so like there are very few there aren't very many brands out there that will actually do private barrelings um there are a few um but what ends up happening with a lot of the barrels that that the distilleries don't end up using for themselves is there's this huge independent bottling market out there and they'll just scoop them up a lot of times it's barrels that are either like off profile for what they're going for or um you know just something that didn't quite meet the sta their standards um, and they just sell them off and, and the independent bottlers do what they will with them. And there's a huge, huge market for that. If you look in a, a store that has a pretty hefty selection of whiskey, um, a lot of times you'll find the independent bottlings like somewhere off to the side there, 
but there's there's some really really cool stuff there a lot of times those those are the some of the like uh barrels that will again be a little bit off profile from what you're used to they'll always almost always be cast strength and and single barrel and so you know you kind of get to roll the dice and try something that might be a little bit different than what you're used to with a certain distillery yeah i mean this was great because you you led us through a, a lot of things that were like I said, you, you did, you took us from a, a, a non-brand aligned sort of approach into the scotch world. And I felt like I was able to try three different things that give you a lot of different flavor profiles going into it. Now, the sherry thing, I, I agree. I think that's what 90% of bourbon drinkers would be able to be like, yeah, okay, cool. I, I can, I can do a sherry bomb. Uh, but yeah. here with number two, I think that there's some, there's some flavor profiles there that just really ring home for a lot of people. So I, I'm, I'm kind of torn between two and three, but I do want to say thank you again for sending the pours and joining us on the podcast today because you you are enlightening a little bit more people and and I think you hopefully expanded a few more minds to say like you don't have to be you know all bourbon all the time you know there's a, there's a lot of whiskey out there in the world and and there's a lot of good things coming out of Scotch too yeah yeah there 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 really is and um, once you start to kind of cross that 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 line a little bit and 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 kind of get to experience those two different styles. Um, you realize that there's kind of a time and place for both styles. You know, obviously, I'm a I'm a huge Scotch guy, but I, I love bourbon just as much. Um, and and kind of depending on the night or the mood or kind of what's going on, you can find a you can almost find an occasion for you know those two different styles. Um, kind of depending on what's going on, and and of course that doesn't even take into account all the other whiskey styles out there. You know, we're not even going to talk about Japanese whiskey or, or Irish whiskey, but there's a there's a many touch on those. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's 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 even it's it, it's crazy out there. So. Um, with, with scotch, you know, you, you at least know what you're getting yourself into. Japanese whiskey is a, a, a crazy, crazy spot right now. They're in a crazy place. So one of those days we'll do Japanese whiskey pursuit and it'll happen. But Chris, yeah. I do want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. Uh, let you give a plug for where people can follow you and how they can learn more about your private tastings as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I am, uh, pretty much available on every social media outlet at single malt savvy. Um, my website is singlemaltsavvy.com. That's where um, all of my reviews and articles are published. You can find me, uh, I can reach me via email. I'm at chris at singlemaltsavvy.com. Um, so if you are interested in doing a, a private uh, virtual whiskey tasting, I take people through um, bourbon flights, scotch flights. A lot of times we'll do varieties um, where we'll do kind of an around the world type of expression where we'll do like, you know, one, something from the US, you know, a single malt from Scotland, and then a like a third expression either from Japan or, you know, something Irish or, you know, just some sort of third contrasting style. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, I really have uh, really enjoyed, especially over the last year or so, being able to bring that knowledge to so many people and, and, and uh, you know, sort of share some of these cool experiences. So, and this is certainly one of those experiences where I'm, I'm definitely grateful to have uh, been able to, to have this conversation with you. So, um, so thank you again for having me. Um, this was a, this was an awesome time and uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Well, for sure. And, and thank you for educating First, myself, uh, plus a lot of other listeners out there. I know many people that are into bourbon. We kind of were like uh, snuff our nose a little bit. And we're like, oh, who needs scotch? We've got bourbon right here. We got our fifty-one percent corn. It's exactly. It's all we need. However, there is there is a whole other world out there. And as much as we want to go and chase every new bottle, there's. I mean, there's just so many things that you can go and you can taste and ex- explore a flavor range. And this is again, one of the, the the cool moments that I get to have, especially sharing it with you and being able to try something different, try something unique. And my scotch collection doesn't go more than I think beyond like three or four bottles. And so this is a, a good opportunity for me to learn as well, because 
I know that we all have a, a lot to learn because the, the, it is the wide world of whiskey. Like there's, there's a lot of things that we can learn, a lot of notes we can take, and the flavors are just, they're all over the place. So it gives the opportunity for anybody to kind of really hone in and find out, you know, what whiskey speaks to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've found to be, to be really rewarding actually when exposing people to some of these contrasting styles is that, yeah, sometimes there are, there are some folks that are, you know, really just heavily into, into bourbon on some of these tastings and, um, being able to say, Hey, you know, maybe you'll be, maybe you'll find, uh, that there's a, a, a you know, a single malt or an Irish whiskey that, that, that speaks to you that you probably wouldn't have tried otherwise. And a lot of times I'll kind of get those people saying, Hey, I think I'm going to go buy this scotch now, now that I've tried it. And I don't think I would have had that opportunity otherwise. So, you know, it's, it's definitely worth the, um, the experiment to, to branch out a little bit, try something that's, that's a little bit outside your wheelhouse, even if it just gives you some good perspective on what you do like. So maybe you, you, you try and dip your toes into scotch and you say, okay, uh, that wasn't really for me, but maybe it kind of helps drive home, you know, why you like bourbon or rye so much. And um, I think that perspective is also kind of cool once you, once you kind of know what's on the other side. For sure. Well, make sure you follow Chris at Single Malt Savvy wherever you are on your socials. You can also follow Bourbon Pursuit on all the socials as well. And you can also get us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for everybody tuning in and we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers.